Hey, it's, uh, it's great to be here with you. When I say that, I want to make sure I put the emphasis in the right place. Like, <clears throat> there's a tendency to say it's great to be here with you, like in the Bahamas with you. But it, I would also say it's great to be here with you. Like, I, I have got to hear a lot of stories from my dad about different uh, people in this room, different churches, uh, hearing how God is at work in and through different leaders. Uh, so it's great to put some faces with those stories and just to um, celebrate how God is using the Solomon Foundation. I, it's a sacred trust, and when I hear Doug up here talking about it, it, it makes me feel a lot better, right? Like you realize how much is at stake. And so I'm, I'm thankful for Doug and for the leaders uh, of the Solomon Foundation and, and for the great things God is doing. And um, I'm glad to have a few minutes to talk with you all. I, I hope this will be a time of encouragement. I also hope it will, it will be a time uh, of challenge, right? Like I hope you don't just walk out of here and leave here uh, encouraged and strengthened, but, but also challenged in some ways. I, I think that's important when we gather together uh, as co-laborers. Um, my wife couldn't be here this weekend. We have a daughter who is almost 21, but she's getting married in, in three weeks. So my wife was going to come, and um, they are just feeling the full stress of getting this wedding ready, and they're doing it at our house, so that adds kind of like a double layer to it. And uh, so I brought it couple of my uh, other daughters with me. So my, my wife or two teenage girls didn't seem like a fair trade, uh, but, it's, but it is good to be here, and she wishes that she could be here. I love that, that you all get to do this with your spouse. I think that's just a, I think that's a beautiful thing. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we had on Easter weekend, we had a special time of baptisms after, uh, after Easter services. And I always have like some of my favorite baptism stories, but I don't always get to share them. Uh, you know, it's not always appropriate to share them with the, the whole church. So uh, one of my favorites was this guy. He was kind of a military guy. He, he came down into the water, and he told me that he was in the military, that he could hold his breath for between four to six minutes without any trouble, and he wanted me to hold him down for two to three minutes. Now, I just want you to think about that if you're baptizing someone. If you, I mean, two to three minutes is a long, that's a really long time. That's enough to convince a lot of other people not to get baptized, right? That's enough for security to come into the water with me and put a stop to it. And so I'm like, bro, I can't do two to three minutes, but I'll give you a 10 count. And so I, I took him down, and in my mind, I'm thinking, one, two, this is a really long time, three, four, I pulled him back up. I just couldn't, I couldn't get past like five seconds. But uh, another one of my favorite stories was, was this older lady um, who came into the water, kind of a petite lady, and uh, we always have a few people who are scared of water, like legit afraid of water. That's a phobia. I don't know if you've baptized people like this before, but it is, it is terrifying for them. So I always admire the courage required for them to be baptized, right, because they're overcoming this huge fear. They haven't been underwater, some of these folks, in decades. And so it's significant that they're going to be dunked you know, publicly. It's a really big deal. And so when someone is afraid of the water and about to get baptized, they don't have to tell you. Like You can, you can tell. You can just see that this is a terrifying thing for them. And so you know, I kind of met her and, and walked with her, kept my arm around her, and I was talking to her the whole time. Hey, I'm so proud of you. Thank you for your courage. Thank you for being obedient to what God has asked you to do. I'm going to be with you every, every moment of this. We're going to do this together. You know, I'm, I'm trying to talk her through it. 
And I, I start to baptize her, and, and right as I take her down, she just locks up. Petite lady, but strong as an ox. I mean, like, she just, she just locks up, and she grabs the top of my neck like this, and she's, she's not going down. And I'm putting some, I'm putting some muscle into it, and it's, it's not happening. So I kind of hit reset. And she's like, I really want to do this. And I said, I know. I'm proud of you for doing it. We're going to try it again. We're going to try it again. Now, I've heard about from other pastors um, the technique, right? The, what is it, man? Sweep the feet. Sweep the feet. I've heard about it, but I've not really had a chance to uh, implement it. And so I thought, I'm, I've, give, I've given people nudges before, just to kind of encourage them along, but this was the first time I went full Street Fighter. Like, I went <laughs> Karate Kid, Cobra Kai, I swept, I swept the feet, dunked her. I don't even think she knew it. The whole thing's on videotape, which I was thrilled about. Uh, got her all the way under, brought her back up. One of my favorite baptisms uh, from a couple weeks ago was this lady that came down into the baptistry, and, and you could just kind of tell she had had a, a rough life. Like, you could just kind of see it in her eyes. And, and um, as I was getting ready to baptize her, I, I looked down at her forearm, and there was a tattoo across her forearm, and the tattoo said, uh, kiss the wave, kiss the wave. Well, a, a few months earlier, I had preached a series based on Spurgeon's quote, uh, where he says, I have learned to kiss the wave that cast me upon the rock of ages, right? I've learned to kiss the persecution, the suffering, the challenges, the trials, the difficulties of this life that would draw me closer to Jesus. I've learned to kiss the wave that cast me upon the rock of ages. So the series was called Kiss the Wave. We went through it. And, and so here's this lady as she's getting baptized, and the tattoo is Kiss the Wave. And and as I read that, and as I baptized her and had a chance to hear her story, one of the things I was reminded of once again, it's what I want to talk to you all today about, is the power of metaphor. The power of metaphor. Like, this is woven throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'm working uh, right now with Zondervan on a study Bible that's, that we're just going to call Metaphors for Life. And it goes through all the different metaphors uh, in, not all of them, but many of the different metaphors in Scripture, understanding that this is how, how God reveals himself. Think about the metaphors used for God. God as Father, God as a rock, God as a shelter. Uh, let's think about Jesus. What are the metaphors that Jesus uses when he wants us to understand who he is? Let's give me some Jesus metaphors. Good shepherd, I'm the light. Gate. Door. Um, what are some other ones? Maybe somebody said bread of life. Did I hear that one? Uh, living water. So when, when Jesus wants us to understand who he is, he, he, he uses metaphors. The Holy Spirit, when he wants us to understand himself, he, it's, it's wind, it's fire metaphors. The Bible speaks of the church as the bride of Christ in the house of God or as a physical body where each part, does its, each part of the body fulfills its own function. And, and so there's this incredible power in metaphors. There's a, a, a type of metaphor, though, that is especially compelling, and, it, and it's called a, a controlling metaphor, or maybe you learned about it in um, high school uh, literature class as, a, as an extended metaphor in poetry, where they take a metaphor that has, it, it, it can be woven, it can be looked at from different angles, it doesn't break down quickly, but it can, it can be held up and, and considered, right? 
Um, so an example of this would be when a friend of mine, he and his wife went in for some marriage counseling, and they'd been married about 15 years, and they kept having the same arguments, the same fights, disagreements. They just couldn't, couldn't find any peace. And, and I'd encourage him, hey, go, go see this lady. I, I think she can really help you kind of think through some of this. Because they'd read the books, and they'd gone to the classes. They were committed followers of Jesus. They were just really struggling as husband and wife. So they go in for marriage counseling. The lady sits and listens, and she just takes some notes as they tell their story. And she writes down words as she's listening. She writes down <clears throat> words like attack, defend, fight, struggle, battle. And then when they're finished telling the story, the, the lady, the female counselor, she says to them, do you, do, you, do you realize the metaphor that you're using for your marriage? Do you realize the lens through which you're looking at your relationship? And the metaphor was what? It was, it was war. It was battle. It was fighting. That was the metaphor. And all their language, without even making a conscious decision to do it, played into this metaphor. So she had learned, and I didn't know this about my buddy, but she had learned that early on in their courtship, they loved to go out and go dancing together, even took some ballroom dancing lessons. And I didn't say it at the time, but I did take note of that so I could make fun of him later. But he, he's, he's telling me about how she started to exchange the metaphor. She said, what if instead of fight metaphor, what if it was dance metaphor? Well, what if instead of she attacks and, and he defends, what if it was you move this way, and when you move this way, I move this way, and, and so she began to connect it differently. And my buddy's like, I know it sounds simplistic, but it has changed the way we communicate. That we, we were looking at it, we were treating each other as if we were enemies on a battlefield instead of dance partners in a ballroom. And by changing the controlling metaphor, they changed their behavior. There's incredible power in the right metaphor. The Bible, Bible knows this. It's woven throughout Scripture. If you can have the right metaphor, you will have the right behavior. If you have the right picture, then you'll know how you should respond, how you should live, how you should, how you should lead. So there's, there's incredible power in metaphor. I, I, um, I talked with this, this guy backstage a while back, and he was grieving. It was like the third anniversary of his daughter's death, and he was kind of grieving her death, and he had a feather in his pocket, and he pulls out the feather, and he shows it to me, and at the funeral, there was uh, one of his friends who gave him this feather, along with a poem, poem from Emily Dickinson, you might recognize the poem, uh, it's called <clears throat> Hope is the Thing with Feathers, which I, I kind of like the title, because for those of you who are metaphor skeptics, it just makes it really easy for you, Hope is the Thing with Feathers. It goes like this, hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune, I love it, and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And he carries this feather in his pocket. Why? Because it represents hope. It represents something that can't be taken away because of who Jesus is, and, and it's incredible power and a metaphor. So a lot of, when I'm preparing sermons, a lot of the times I want to start with a metaphor, because you can turn to most any chapter in the Bible, and there's some metaphoric language. Now, sometimes it's not intentional metaphor, right? Like it's, it's a word picture that we have from a narrative that allows us to own it differently. So, for example, when, when Peter 
comes out of the boat to walk towards Jesus. It's not, that's not a teaching metaphor. That's something that happened literally, and yet, you know, abandon the boat is a pretty good metaphor for faith. And so we'll, we'll use that metaphor, that language, as a way to, to teach on kind of bold faith. Um, I, some of the messages I have upcoming, I have a, a, a sermon coming up called Paneled Houses uh, from Haggai 1.4, uh, where God says, is it a time for you to be living in your paneled houses while my house remains in ruin? Um, another series I have coming up called, is called Clear the Stage, kind of uses metaphoric language to help us understand idolatry as it relates to what happens in church. Uh, another series I have is a spiritual warfare series called uh, Battleground or Playground. And, and just that idea that if I wake up in the morning and think that I'm waking up, you know, in Atlantis, that's going to change how I approach the day. If I wake up and it's playground time, that's going to change how I begin my day. But if I wake up and I understand it's battleground, that I have an enemy uh, who seeks to kill, steal, and destroy, if, if I'm understanding that metaphor, uh, then it's, it's going to change how I approach the day, how I protect my family. It's going to, it's going to change how I, I live and how I lead. So there's, there's, in, there's incredible power in metaphor. So, okay, we've talked about metaphor, so let's push pause on that, but keep a hold of it. And I, I also want to talk to you about mantra. And so what we're going to do here is we're going to connect some biblical metaphor to, to ministry mantra. So mantra is a phrase or it's a sentence that you, you will repeat to yourself. Um, it holds deep significance. And it can be repeated when you need to retain focus, increase confidence, when you need to propel action. So some of you are aware of this. You know, there's, there's some of us that get uncomfortable with mantra because we think somehow it's like yoga and is this... A, it's, it's fine. Like mantra is a biblical idea that these are God's promises that we hold on to and we repeat at certain times as a way to drive us and shape us and give us direction. I have a friend who is a uh, sports psychologist and he, he mostly works with um, professional football players and um, I asked him about some of the common struggles that he has to help athletes navigate. And he quickly gave me some of the top three things, and you know, I, you might need to take note of these because I immediately resonated with these things as a pastor leader. I immediately thought, yeah, you know what, that, that is some of the same stuff that we struggle with, and it might be kind of our only chance to feel similar to NFL players, but, but here's, here are the three things. Number one, he said professional athletes are under incredible pressure, and they can struggle with confidence. If they lose confidence when the pressure's on, they lose their career. So what affects confidence more than anything else is failure or the fear of failure. I don't know if you can relate to that as a pastor, as a ministry leader. The professional football players in particular, he said, struggle with what's called encore mentality. That they get done with one Sunday, and they know they got to beat it the next Sunday. Sound familiar? Then we're more alike with these NFL players, and maybe we realize, I get done with one, game day's over, I gotta start preparing for the next game day, and whatever I did on the last game day, you know, it needs to be better on the next game day. And, and so he said that encore mentality can, can wreak havoc on your confidence, um, <clears throat> because you don't ever have a chance to hit reset. Number two, he said they sometimes have to break old patterns, but muscle memory has set in. So he, he told me about working with a quarterback that he needed to change his throwing motion, but the problem is he had that 
throwing motion established you know, from elementary school. The one he had was set since elementary school. Now he needs a new throwing motion. Well, that takes incredible mental concentration and emotional determination to break muscle memory. Where you've been doing it a certain way a long time, now you know you need to do some things differently, but it doesn't feel natural, it doesn't feel comfortable, you're, you're reluctant. Uh, thirdly, he said that these athletes have to deal with all kinds of outside distractions that can affect performance on the field. It might be relationship drama or financial stress, but they need, uh, they need help, so what's happening off the field doesn't affect what's happening to them on the field or their level of play on the field. And, and so when I asked him, I said, okay, so how do you help them through this? He said, well, that's, that's where mantra comes in. He said, mantra can make all the difference. If the, if the athlete can get the right phrase and say it at the right time, and it's the right image, it can, it can make all of the difference. I said, well, what's the secret to coming up with you know, a good mantra for an athlete? And he said, well, first you have to believe it's true. This is really significant. Like, the, the athlete can't tell himself something that he doesn't really believe. Like, it's not just positive self-talk where you keep saying it to yourself enough that you actually start to believe something that isn't, isn't really true. He said the, the athlete has to, number one, believe it's true. And he said you have to steer away from wishful thinking or advertising slogans. Like, you know, it can't be just do it, right? Like, you, it can't be too cliche. It, it, you don't want to make it sound cliche. And he said it also helps to think in terms of, of an image. And so he was telling me about one, one athlete that... that um, that he worked with that was just losing passion for the game. And, um, and, and so one of the mantras was, I was made for this. And the image that went with it was throwing a football to his dad in the backyard as the lights were going, as the sun was setting. So that's the image, that's the mantra. My whole life I've been prepared for this. I was made for this, I was made for this, I was made for this hike, right? Like that is, that is what's happening in their, in their head. So with, with this in mind, so we've talked about metaphors, the power of metaphors, and we've kind of touched on um, the power of mantra. So with that in mind, I, I want to connect this to ministry leadership, connect some gospel metaphors as ministry mantra. I, I have, just to lay the groundwork for this, I have a, a, a growing concern that the church uses business and secular language to describe a sacred and, and supernatural assignment. I don't like that. It, it makes me feel creepy when it, the church starts getting described as, a, as an organization and pastors start thinking of themselves as CEOs. I, I, that makes me want to take a shower. That's not, that's not, that's not what we have been, when, been called to. That's not what it looks like to be a servant. That's not how the church is going to advance. So the, the ministry, I took like the ministry values of a half a dozen or so prominent churches, and I cherry-picked it, but and I, I took the ministry, the cultural values then of about a half a dozen Fortune 500 companies, and I mixed them all up, and I gave them to our leadership team. And I said, I just want you to tell me which one's which. Like, which ones of these go to the church, and which ones of these go to the Fortune 500 companies? And they couldn't do it. Like, you just can't tell. That's a really big problem. If the same... If the same values, vision, language, direction, if it's the same thing for a Fortune 500 company as it is for the church, then, then that's, a, that's a problem. So there's certain values that are, you know, you can, I'm not saying you can't attach a scripture to it, 
like teachability and integrity and humility and innovative and sim- sim- simplicity and make it better. Man, those, are all, those are all fine and good, and you can attach a scripture to it, but, but they could work for any company or any organization. So what we want to do is we want to use Bible language to help us describe and give vision to who we are and what we do as, as church leaders. We, we don't, there's plenty we can learn from the secular world, but, but the Bible gives us the language that we need. So one of the ways that we, we're doing this at the church where I serve is that we're trying hard to use metaphors that are found in the gospel to define who we are and what we do. I'll give you a few examples of this, and then I want to camp out on one that I feel like might be especially helpful for those of us in this room. So some examples um, would be drop the mask. So Luke 12, verse 2, Jesus says you can't keep hiding behind your religious masks. So metaphor, language, religious masks, mantra, drop the mask. And so what we value is authenticity and vulnerability. And we're going to value authenticity over appearance. And we want to create environments where people can be vulnerable and model the way of vulnerability. And we want to war against the common trappings of religious leaders and the masks of hypocrisy and self-righteousness and criticism without contribution. So drop the mask. Another example, I did a sermon about 10 years ago uh, on this. That we've since then kind of wrap our, some of our staff meetings in this language uh, but it's called Wreck the Roof. It's from Luke chapter 5, of course, you all know, where the friends tear through the roof to get a sick man to Jesus. And so what we value then as a staff with this metaphor and mantra, Wreck the Roof, is we're going to be innovative and creative, and we're going to do whatever it takes to bring one person to Jesus. And we want to do that in such a way that other people look at it and say, that's impractical, that's too expensive. If people aren't doing that, we're not doing it right. If they see it and they think, well, yeah, that makes sense. If that's just how far we've gone with it, then we haven't gone, we haven't gone far enough. And, and so we, we're going to prioritize kind of this wreck the roof thing. That means when we get together on, for a staff meeting on Easter, and I say to you know, our um, Elizabethtown campus pastor, and I, I say, hey, tell me about Easter weekend. And I, I say to him, in front of the staff meeting, I say, do you, do you know... Uh, uh, how many did you have on, on East, for Easter weekend? And he says, I don't know. We celebrate that. I'd say, tell me one story from Easter weekend. And he tells me a story about one person who dramatically was brought to Easter service and how God has worked in that one person's life, and here's that name. That, that's what we're going to celebrate. We're, we're going to celebrate engagement over attendance. We're, we're going to celebrate one life out of, at a time. And, and when we go out of our way for one person, that's the Jesus way. So I'll give you an example of where we got this wrong. I, I got a text message from a guy who, who was a, a deacon. He and his wife, his name's Dennis, they, their kids were grown. They adopted this little girl. And within two to three months of adopting her, they, she was diagnosed with cancer. And so they have been, for the last uh, 18 months or so, they, they have been going through chemo. And that he had reached, apparently he'd reached out to the church because they wanted to have an end of, the, uh, end of chemo party for Lizzie, his little, his little girl, who's uh, five years old. And, um, and he didn't tell me this. I've, I found out after the fact. Because, but we told him, hey, 
the time that you're wanting to have it, it just doesn't really work on our schedule. And this room is going to be used for something else at that time, and we don't think we'll have... Anyway, he, he was basically told no. So they went and found a, a church that said, yeah, that sounds really cool. Why don't you do it here? And, you know, they invited all their friends and all their neighbors and all their family. So the reason I found out about it was because he invited me to come to the end of the chemo party at this other church. And I'm like, why are you having it at that church? Why don't you have it at our church? And, and he said, well, you know, I totally get it, understand. He couldn't have been more gracious. And I'm like, that's ridiculous. What's wrong with us? And so I, I, I went back and I was trying to identify some of what had happened. And um, I, I found out that for, for some of our staff, when it came to like using the spare, I mean, there's over a million square feet. There's plenty of room. And when it comes to using this, this square footage that, uh, for different things, you know, we have this unofficial policy that had been kind of just used over the years. If we can't do it for everybody, we won't do it for anybody, which is the least gospel policy on the planet, right? Like, think about Jesus. Uh, sorry, bro, if I, can't, if I can't do it for everybody, I'm not going to do it for you. That is, that's just not at all. And so, you know, we said, no, look, that... That's not what we're going to do. We, we want to say, you know, we will do for one person what we wish we could do for everyone. Like, we can do it for everyone, but we can do it for this one person, and that is, that is wreck the roof. So we get a do-over. This weekend, you know, that, the following weekend, we're going to throw a huge, you know, end of chemo party for Lizzie. And we're not going to just do it on the side room. We're, we're going to do it big and right. We're going to do it in a room where the family can be honored and valued and other neighbors and family, uh, friends can come and, and see what it, what it looks like for the church to be um, impractical in how they, how they love one, one person at a time. Um, another metaphor that works for mantra that we use is grip the plow from Luke 9, verse 62. Um, uh, You'll know this text well, but it's, you know, Jesus says, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is, isn't uh, fit for service in the kingdom of God. So we want to be intentional and, get, and engaged, um, you know, that as for our staff specifically, we are not business professionals sitting in the office all day. We, we get dirty working in the fields. Like, that, that's who we're called to be. So if you're, if you're keeping office hours all week long, then you're doing it wrong, right? Like, you, you need to be out in the fields. You need to be getting sweaty, dirty, and, um, and knowing some names. So an example of that, this past week I got an email. I got permission to share it uh, with you. It's a, Kyle, I want to share with you the story of my sister, Anne. She's been an addict for several years. I started, it started with prescription medicine after a car accident a number of years ago. Over the last few years, she has switched to heroin and meth. We didn't think things could get much worse, but... She was sold into sex trafficking. She, went, she has been missing for a few months. I talked to her before she went missing and told her to never forget that she can call on Jesus and he will answer. And after having not heard from her for so long, last night she showed up at the LaGrange campus. She said Jesus told her to go there. She had never been there before. The people invited her to come in. Apparently there were some folks having a Bible study. They stopped their Bible study when she came in. It was clear that that she was struggling. Stopped their Bible study. Uh, they gave her a, a phone to call my dad. They fed her, and they gave her something to drink. There was a police officer there. I don't know his name, uh, but he decided to be Jesus to my sister. 
and he stayed with her until my dad got there, and she was a mess. She was panicking, seeing hallucinations. He stayed right with her, and there was no judgment or condemnation, and the police officer was so kind and respectful to my dad. It may have been just another day for that officer. <clears throat> he probably sees it all the time. It may just have been another day for the folks at church last night, but to us, the ones who love my sister, it meant everything. It meant everything. To me, you know, you have an example here of a police, off, police officer that's paid to be there because there's stuff happening around. But he loves Jesus, right? And so when that lady comes in, it's both hands on the plow. When these folks who are having a Bible study see her come in, it's both hands on the plow. That, that this is what we want to celebrate. This is what we, we want to measure. So grip the plow. Get, get to work. Get in the fields. Have some stories to tell. If, if you can't do that, then you're, you're doing it wrong. Um, another metaphor as mantra is empty the jar that we use. So Luke 7, Jesus is at the house of Simon the Pharisee, right? And this is where the woman anoints his feet with expensive perfume. And the value here is is expressive and generous, that we're going to be informal, expressive, and extravagant in our worship and gatherings, that we will be personally and sacrificially generous in expressing our love to Jesus and devotion to him, that we will risk offending religious people to make it clear how we feel about Jesus. We'll, we'll risk making some other people feel uncomfortable because that's, that's what it looks like to empty the jar. So that's some examples of, and, and by the way, there's so many of these that you can do. Like I was, I was just thinking the other day when something didn't go as I thought it would for me, of the, the, the metaphor where Jesus talks to the disciples about shake the dust off your feet, right? It didn't, it didn't go well over here. So right, shake the dust. Go to the next thing that God has for you. Go to the next thing he's called you to. And I thought, that's good. I, that's a mantra that I need to work in sometimes, where if it just doesn't go well, I'm going to shake the dust. That's, that's what God's called me to do. I didn't work out here. I'm going to be faithful to what he opens for me next. Um, there's all kinds of these mantras that you could talk through. But, but the one I, I want to kind of unpack with you in the next 10 minutes or so, and I hope will especially be encouraging to us, is the, the metaphor, the mantra of be the branch. Be the branch. It comes, of course, from John 15, where Jesus says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But, but think about context here. So um, it's so nice to talk to you all because I don't have to give all that. Like, you just, you know what the context is, right? So Jesus, um, <clears throat> it's, he's down to his final hours. He doesn't have much time left on this earth. And he's, he's, leaving, he's leaving the upper room, and he's heading towards the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and he knows what is going to await these disciples, and he knows that they're going to be called on to advance the kingdom, fulfill the great commission, but, you know, most of them are going to be killed for their faith, and it, it's, going to be, it's going to be a really difficult time. So what do you say? Well, the, the time for long sermons is over, but he wants to say something that will stick with him. He wants to say something that will remind them of everything he has said. And so as, as they walk along this path, he, he looks over, and, and on this path are all these um, vines with these long, sprawling branches. And he says, hey, listen, listen up. I'm the vine, and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So hey, look, guys, if you forget everything else, just be the branch. Just be the branch. When you're not sure what to do, when you're not sure how you're going to do it, just 
be the branch. What's the branch's job? Stay connected to the vine. That's, that's it. That's the most important job of a branch, is the branch stays connected to the vine. Now, you know, the branches could be like 100 feet long. They could be really long and still be bearing fruit. As long as it's connected to the vine, that it'll bear much fruit. But Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. This is why I get really, really uncomfortable when churches start talking about best practices as if they had something creative enough or, you know, in, in innovative enough that it, well, if you, if you do this the way we did this, then you'll bear much fruit. Nope. Nope. Apart from him, you can do nothing. And, and you can be in a church where there are, you know, thousands of people for Easter or ten people for Easter. That, that God's the one who makes it grow. We plant the seed. We water the seed. If I start to think I'm the vine rather than the branch, then when things don't go well, I start to feel failure because I think I'm responsible for the growth. I'm not. If I start to think of myself as the vine rather than the branch, and things go incredibly well, then I start thinking, oh, well, look what I did. And I didn't. It, it, it's just be the branch. Be the branch. And if you can be the branch, Jesus says, then you will bear, you will bear much fruit. So the disciples would have needed to hold on to this metaphor. So to go back to metaphor and mantra, they get this image in their mind of where the, where the vine connects, where the branch connects to the vine. And that's, that's the image. And if they can just remember that. As, so as they're walking, and they would certainly see a lot of these vines and branches you know, after Jesus would leave. And, and whenever they would see one, it would trigger the mantra. It would engage the metaphor, right? To, to be, the, be the branch. And they would need it. They're, I don't know where you're needing it. Like I was jotting down a few things that I think most of us could relate to. There are times where we just feel disappointing progress. And, and it can be hard to be the branch when we thought certain fruit would come by now, and it hasn't. Um, I thought by now we would have, I don't know how you would finish that, but my guess is all of us have some of that. Uh, I jotted down the discouraging culture. Like there's just, it, it, can be, it can be difficult to be the branch when you are discouraged by things that are happening on the news and the political divide. On, on Tuesday morning last week, our, as elders, we meet together on Tuesday mornings at 7 for prayer every week. And, and, you know, we had three of our prayer requests were, you know, for folks in our church who are, are gender con- confused or they're transitioning and trying to figure things out. And, and you just think about the world we live in, the culture we're in now, and it can be discouraging. Uh, then the third thing I jotted down here is draining people. You know, just people who wear you out. And, um, you know, you've got your people, and i got my people, but folks in the church who you know you've been called to love, but man, it, it, they just, they wear you out. Um, so I've got this letter that I don't get to share publicly, but it's my all-time favorite. Um, and I think it's just a safe room for this. Uh, <laughs> I haven't read it for a while. The subject is your subject line is your animal abuse. Okay, uh, it's very simple, Kyle. Abuse an animal and go to jail. Um, I don't know. It's so inappropriate. I'm trying to decide what to share. What I'm trying to I, like if my mom wasn't in the room, I'd be all in. But so background on this is I shared a story about my son who was 
you know, I don't know, five at the time uh, that this happened, where he was, I looked outside the window, and he was swinging a cat around by its tail. Um, which we didn't teach him to do. He wasn't discipled in that, but anyway. <laughs> uh, there are several issues that I hope you will read and absorb. I did not appreciate the pet abuse story or your flip attitude about it in Saturday's sermon. Your son is abusing a harmless animal that God created. Pets only want love and soft affection. How in the heck could he have done this? Don't you or your wife teach him anything, or is he too good? That dear animal will be traumatized forever and should be put in a shelter if your kids can't treat any animal properly. Listen, I kept my neighbor's cat after I saw what her four kids did to this poor cat. Translated, I stole my neighbor's cat. That's what she did. Six years later, it still, has, it still hasn't gotten over the memories of those kids tossing it around like a damn pillow and screaming and running after it. And God only knows what else. I had to keep it. That was the right thing for me to do, <laughs> to keep it from being harmed anymore. They didn't seem to care where it was, and they finally moved away. She's one of the two cats that I have. My, late, my last cat, Angel, that I had for over 13 years died. But I tell you, let God be my witness. I would have taken a bullet for her. That's what it says. That's just what it says. I'm not making any of this up. In addition to the unexcused action by your son, some wag job in your church will hear this come home and do the same thing with their animal because the pastor's son did it, so why can't I? Kyle, you need to wake up here. Okay, this is where it goes off a little bit. Maybe, hmm, maybe we should take your son's pee-pee tail and swing, it, swing him around by his pee-pee tail in the yard. I don't know what pee-pee tail is exactly, but I, I'm, like he did that cat, let's see how he would like it. <laughs> He's not going to like that. I would then put down my camera to uh, you don't deserve any pets. You're obviously not the right owners. You have plenty of witnesses from your testimony in church. In addition, I didn't like this. Is I, in addition, I didn't like your sermon Saturday. It was it, it was depressing and bored me. You made light of many things that shouldn't have been funny, and it seems like you were cockier than usual. And after your flip comment about the cat, it was made clear to me that you are a jerk. You're not a sensitive, compassionate, humble preacher, but a jerk, and you will never come close to Dave Stone. And frankly, we hope. You don't last much longer here anyway. I don't, think, I don't think we ever want to come back and listen to any of your sermons. We will try very hard to come to Dave's sermons. We are volunteers, of course, they're volunteers. Uh, but I'm beginning to think twice about coming back to Southeast. If your peers agreed with your sermon beforehand that something is wrong here, I know you could care less. Maybe, maybe the Humane Society will visit you shortly. Co sent to me, copy to all the elders. Man. Like, you almost appreciate ones like that because, it, like, bless her heart, but it's just so, it's so far over the top that it gets a little bit entertaining. And, but, but yet, you know, just having kind of a steady diet of these things where it's constant stuff like that, it can wear you out. And, 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 and you can get to this place in ministry, and I've found myself in a number of different seasons like this where it's hard to be the branch because I did you know, the, the, it just, people are, it can be so exhausting and, and dealing with issues. But Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me, I in him. He will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So that, that's my challenge for you is just be the branch. Recognize that we are completely dependent upon God's grace and God's spirit and God's power. You know, anything God chooses to do in or through us is only by his grace. You all know that. It's not because we are smart enough or talented enough or creative enough. May God forgive us when we think for a moment that, that 
that we know what we're doing. We don't know. It's not because of us. It is in spite of us. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, you know, may I boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest in me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in my weakness for when I am weak, then I am strong. When I delight in my weakness, that gives God room to demonstrate his strength. When I sit around and act like I know the solution to the problems and I know the answer to all the questions, when, I, when it's all about my strength and here's what, the way things should be done and it's it, my way's the right way and my perspective's the right perspective and I can talk critically or negatively about this leader over here because they're, they're not doing it the way I think they should do it. And you're, when you're doing that, you're, you're just closing the margin for God's power to be demonstrated. His power, when he sees space, that's where he says, oh, okay, I got room to work there. I, I have room to demonstrate my, my power when, when we are weak. So the challenge here is not to, to make yourself weak. You're already weak. Like, congratulations, you've achieved that along with me. We're already weak. It's to acknowledge the reality of our weakness. It's the difference between being humbled and, and humbling yourself. It doesn't, it, it's no big deal to, to be humbled. Everybody Everybody at some point gets humbled. That's what life does. But when you humble yourself, that's what you get credit for. That's where God's blessings come. That, that's what it means, you know, in, in the Beatitudes, to be poor in spirit. Those, to, those who are poor in spirit, the kingdom of God comes. So it, it, is, it is not to just be humbled, but to humble yourself. And that, that certainly means that we do not take credit for what God is doing it, it certainly means we don't act like we know things, um, you know, that it's only by God's grace. So I, I, think of, I think of a couple of examples of this with Moses. I think of when God called Moses, uh, and, and Moses, he didn't want to do it, and God said, and, and Moses said his reason for it. Moses said, I'm not a good speaker. And do you remember what God said to Moses? When Moses said, I'm not a good speaker. God said, I made your tongue. Man, that is incredible. I made your tongue. In other words, I, I, I'll, you just be the branch. I'll be the vine. I made your tongue. So in that scene, you got Moses who's struggling, which we all have these seasons where we struggle with insecurity. I just don't think I can do it, God. I'm not up for this. It's too big. And, but, but then there's another scene towards the end of Moses' life, right, where it's kind of the opposite now, that he's, he's led the people uh, towards the promised land and... and um, and the people are complaining, and they're thirsty, and Moses strikes the rock. And this is, of course, what he's disciplined for. But I don't think it's because he struck the rock. You know, God told him to speak to the rock, and he struck it. I don't, you know, I don't think that's why he was disciplined as much as what Moses said when he struck it. He said to the people, must we bring forth water out of this rock? <laughs> what? You, you thought you had something to do with that? No, no, you're just hitting a rock. You didn't bring any water out of Must we bring water out of this rock? No, there's no, there's no we, right? And so when God disciplines Moses, he doesn't say, because you struck the rock when I told you to speak to it. When God disciplines Moses, he says, because you didn't honor me as holy. That's what he said. That's why, Moses, you're being disciplined. That, that you acted like you had something to do with it there's no, there is no we. Like, we understand that, don't we, in this room? Can, can we just be real clear that there is no we? 
There is no we. It is all God's power. It is all God's spirit. It is all God's grace. We are, we are just a branch. We're just a branch. Now, here's where this is, is really important for some of you, and I, I know I need to wrap up, but my dad's introduction was so long, I feel like I should take an extra few minutes. <laughs> the, uh, sorry, dad. Uh, where we get this out of order is that we will identify ourselves, we will find identity in, in production. Like, there's, there's just this pressure uh, about that in ministry. Like, my identity gets tied to production. And so what happens is we, we begin to translate that over to our relationship with God, that if I, if I, produce, if I produce over here, then, then that's what leads to, that, <clears throat> let me put it this way, that production leads to connection. That if I produce enough fruit, then I get, that's what connects me to the vine, because that's how a lot of us find value, that's how we identify ourselves as producers. And so production leads to connection. But, but Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. It's connection that leads to production. It's connection that leads to production. So, so don't get so caught up in your ministry and what God's called you to do that you're putting the emphasis on production when the emphasis is on connection. It's, you be the branch. It's connection and it's then production. It's connection first that makes all of the difference.